Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Um, welcome back to the weekend ball podcast i am alex my name is alex adams i'm live here in jakarta indonesia covering team canada at the fiba world cup canada's just uh won its third game of the first round against latvia in a pretty commanding fashion after a pretty slow start um i'm joined by the uh one of the best in the business today uh, michael grange of sportsnet michael thanks so much for taking the time and, and doing this Oh, my pleasure, Alex, and uh, thanks for being so flexible in your timing. I didn't realize it was 5.30 in the morning over there, so uh, anyway, good on you, and uh, congrats on, on the assignment, and I'm sure you're having quite an experience. Yeah, no, thanks, Michael, and and no worries. I think I'm just in a vampire mode for the next two weeks, just not a lot of sleep, but uh, it's been really, really fun, and uh, I'm excited for, for the rest of the... Uh, the, I think I have maybe five days. I don't know. What are we? Wednesday. Time time is just all over the place these days. So, um, Michael, before we get started with the team right now and, and how they've been doing at the World Cup, just as someone who's covered the Raptors for so long and, and, and as well Canada basketball, but what was maybe when were you first introduced to the Canadian men's national team and program for you, Michael? Uh, well, like I, I would say as a fan and um, – I was kind of lucky when I was in my twenties at playing university basketball, um, the uh, early twenties, late teens. But the the my head coach at the time, Dave Crook, was uh, affiliated with the national team then, and he kind of has a distinction of leading uh, a young men's team. I think they call it U twenty one. They won a bronze medal mm. at the Worlds. Uh, I think in two thousand five. And um, that was the first medal Canada won since the Olympics of any kind. And so anyway, that was he was uh, kind of an assistant on uh, around of that national team program. And, and also a friend of mine was one of the assistant trainers. Uh, guys now a trainer with the Las Vegas, with the Vegas Golden Knights. And huh. so I remember the summers when I was at university, they would uh, in particular as they were getting ready to go to the 88 olympics uh getting to watch them train being in the gym uh seeing like pasquale norm clark uh huh. jerry kazanowski all these guys huh. so those were like iconic guys to me i remember playing uh pickup basketball uh, at hard house at uft and uh dwight walton coming in and playing two and two with him and dave turcott played one-on-one against dave turcott once uh took like seven buckets off him so i was like maybe my career high point i don't know i'm sure if uh I don't think Dave was going too hard, but uh, anyway, it was um, so going right back then, you know, the national team way was obviously a long, long time before the Raptors were uh, or the NBA was, was kind of a, a prominent thing. Obviously, I was a fan of it, but it wasn't present in your life. Hmm. And so the national team was the highest expression of the sport in this country. So any kind of connection you had with it, I, I had uh, very dear friends who played uh, on the women's uh, Olympic program. Hmm. Um around the same time. So, so that's what it was my entry exposure to it. And so you always tracked it er, ever since then. 
And um, even before that, I remember watching, uh, you know, Jay Trano and and those guys at the at the '84 games. That'd be probably my first memory. Um, and uh, I think they finished fourth in Los yeah. Angeles. And so, you know, going back to them, it was, that's I guess what I would say. And and then to cover it professionally, um, I probably it might have been kind of I think I covered the. Um, uh, it was the turn of the Americas for the U21s. Mm. They don't have that category anymore. It was in it was in uh, Halifax, and and I convinced the Globe and Mail to go out and <laughs> cover it, and uh, that was and that was my first opportunity there. And and Chris Paul was in that tournament. Charlie Villanueva. Oh, cool. Um, JJ Bar- JJ Barea was in that one, and uh, you know, so it was it was a, it was a neat experience. And and with that, just covering the team and, and maybe the program for so long, you wrote just why Canada's destruction of France could be the tipping point for the national program. Just maybe tell us a little bit more about that piece and, and just what you mean by that uh, in terms of it being a tipping point, that win. And, and I, I'm sure now them going 3-0 and and beating Latvia didn't maybe change your mind at all on uh, how you felt. <laughs> Not at all. Yeah. I doubled down. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, I mean, it was just a giant win. And, and I mean... You know, uh, I've been lucky. I've covered this team in some shape or form uh, through many iterations and, um, you know, through some real low points. And, and, you know, I was close with people who were on those teams and coached those teams going back to like the World Cup in 2010. And they finished, I think, they didn't win a game. So I don't know what yeah. that gets you. <laughs> something, something pretty low. And, you know, they lost 11 on that. And uh, Kelly Olenek was just 19 years old. So, and it wasn't like those people in those programs cared less or weren't as motivated or, um, you know, right through the organization. Everyone had the same passion and feeling. They just, for a number of reasons, systemic, logistics, um, just, you know, the cycle of talent, they just couldn't kind of achieve their goals. And, And so, you know, you go to, I think it was 2011 at the turn of America is when I think it was Jay Trano's first coach, first year as coach. And they had, uh, Corey Joseph was on a team and they, they almost qualified for the Worlds that year. But, uh, our old friend Louis, Louis Scola pumped him for about 30 points in a, in a decisive game. It was just incredible. And, uh, you know, I remember broadcasting that game from studio like I'm doing now with, mm-hmm. um, with, uh, with Sportsnet now and, and, you know, that was kind of the beginning. That was where they were really trying to turn things around. And we thought they would reach a lot of these goals in 2015 in Mexico City. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, they came very, very close. It's, you know, it's a kind of like a mythic game in Canadian basketball history. But they were like this close to qualifying for the 2016 Olympics. And that team had, people forget, they had eight or nine NBA players on that team. I think Kelly Olenek, I think, was the oldest. He was 23. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, Wiggins was on that team. Bennett was on that team. Stauskas was on that team. It was an excellent team. And, uh, you know, and you kind of wonder what would have happened had they qualified. They broke through so many of these issues and challenges they'd faced with the years would have just melted away. And and so long answer. But, you know, I think that game against France, the win against France, um, it, to me, it sort of was the final nail in the coffin and that whole almost. 10, 15 year history of frustration and heartbreak and, uh, and all of that. It was, it was Canada taking a really good team, you know, and, and Canada playing to its own potential against a really good opponent at a critical moment 
And even though it's the first game of the tournament, anyone who understands the tournament knows how big a game it was. And for them to execute at that level, um, I just think it took a lot of weight off a lot of people's shoulders. I think it allowed people to kind of justify what we've all believed all these years. And, you know, I think it's we're going to look back as, you know, presuming this team does reach its goals and, you know, they make the Olympics next year. They have a good result here at the Worlds. And, you know, the generations coming up behind, and there's a lot of talent still, you know, that is mm-hmm. going to funnel into this program over the next decade or so. You know, they're going to come into it with the expectation of being the best in the world. And I think that's uh, that's the new leading off point. Hopefully it happens. You know, we can't predict the future, but I think if and when it does happen, um, you know, that's why I felt that moment was we'll look back at it as, as kind of the, the end of the beginning and the beginning of, of mm-hmm. something new. Mm-hmm. And and with that, like, just how has this team come together so quickly? Like they haven't played together really as a collective unit. And like every time I ask the players a question about how have you kind of got chemistry together it's always it's been less than a month which is always a bit shocking to to say how, how do you think they've done that and, and maybe how has J- Jordi Fernandez really been able to to bring this team uh just to be so kind of locked in and engaged and co- just been playing so well so quickly as a team yeah well it's a tribute to Jordi and I'm not going to pretend you know you're there I'm not so yeah. I'm going to defer to your insights there because I got I was around him when they were here at uh, training camp, I certainly spoke to people who've worked with him in the past and all the, everyone says great things. And he, he says all the right things as far as I've heard. Mm-hmm. Um, but his actual impact day to day as this whole process has unfolded, uh, you know, yeah. I don't know, you know, I'm sure mm-hmm. you have some, uh, I'm sure you have some insights closer to the ground than I do. Um, as far as the team getting together, you know, it's always been very interesting with the national team program, this generation, now, but let's go say from Corey Joseph and the Tristan Thompson era, 2011 on. Um, they this is a very close group of athletes. They're predominantly from Toronto or the GTA. Um, they either you know certain segments of them mentored the younger guys, like you know Wiggins and and, and you know RJ Barrett we'll tell stories about running around when Corey Joseph and them were in the gym and he was a little kid and they were fooling around, fooling around with them, uh, just kind of, kind of teasing them along. And then, um, you know, and so there's the older guys who had, uh, have had a longstanding connection to some of these younger guys as the core of the kind of the prime guys or the young guys who either grew up playing with each other, against each other, training with each other. And I think sharing a lot too, right? Like they're all going through this NBA experience together and, you know, you see a familiar face. I think that matters. Um, you've got the the you know the Nikhil and and Shea connections pretty obvious. The Shea RJ connection is pretty obvious. Um, you know Dort and Shea. Uh, you know you kind of keep going. There's zero degrees of separation between all these guys, and so I think because no one's a stranger to each other, mm-hmm. um, they're able to get over all the BS of look. I, I don't want to say the wrong thing here. They just come out and say it. I think there's that's a huge hurdle most teams have to overcome. The I, I don't want to hurt your feelings hurdle. And yeah. in this environment, I think it's like, yeah, well, we've been, you know, busting each other's chops since we were 14 years old. So um, they might not have the the technical polish. A team like Spain, I would have thought a team like France, 
Um, I think last year we saw has to some degree minus maybe the depth of, t- of talent, but um, you know, they've made up by that. They've, they've, they've accelerated because of the relationships. Also, uh, they're very, very high IQ players, right? Mm. I mean, Shay, you talk to Shay for five minutes. He's a smart, smart person, smart basketball player. Uh, you know, and this is true of Melvin Edgen, true of Kelly Olenek, true of uh, Nikhil, true of, you know, they're all guys, you know, Dylan Brooks is a guy who just absorbs game plans and, 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 and kind of uses them to his advantage. So, so I think that helps too. These guys are very experienced pros and, you know, you don't get to that level of accomplishment without, you know, learning quick and being able to assemble information or, or kind of assimilate information really quickly. And how, just how important is it to have a player like Shay? Like maybe I'm, I'm asking the self kind of like the obvious question, but what does he bring to this team that maybe, you know, like, is it like, I, I, I was two years old when Steve Nash was playing for this program. So I, I can't really relate to how good to compare the two, but like is he is he better than maybe Nash was at in in two thousand or is <laughs> um, it very similar or, or how would you kind of uh, I mean I mean it's you know they're very they're I would say they're fairly different players mm-hmm. um, but the common thread I think is that they have very very rare and very um, exceptional abilities to get teams over the hump in 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 tough situations in the half court. And I would say they would do it differently. So with Nash, you know, not necessarily in order of his preference, but he certainly had the ability to spread the floor as a, as a, you know, one of the world's greatest three point shooters. Um, he, I would say his specialty is probably anyone watching this would know is his ability to create easy baskets for his teammates out of chaos. And, you know, like, uh, you know, I remember, talking to uh, Jalen Rose after he'd been traded mm-hmm. to Phoenix is a long, long time ago. And mm-hmm. I was asking him, oh, what's it like playing with Steve? He goes, you don't even have to dribble. <laughs> you know, you just, <laughs> you just kind of hang around and have your hand open and you're going to get an easy bucket. Right. And, and so Nash was able to do that for his teammates. And that's just an incredible asset. Shea is, he's a good playmaker too, but I think his magic is he can actually get the bucket. And um, he certainly does in the NBA. He did in that third quarter against France, and I thought against Lafayette in the second half, or, um, especially in the third quarter, again, his ability just to create offense out of nothing, and it's the way he's doing it. You can't really defend it. I'm sorry. Um, maybe, you know, just some teams in this tournament can find that specific kind of lengthy – it's going to take a very special defender to really bother Shea, but but for the most part – you know, when he gets two feet in the paint and he's either going to, you know, shift gears on you and get to the rim or he's going to use his footwork mm-hmm. and get to kind of a little turnaround midi or he'll just pull up or, you know, these are all shots that are at the high level of difficulty. Um, but he makes it easy. And the, and because it's so easy for him, he just he can just crumple a defense. And, and I think have someone on your team who can do that two or three possessions in a row uh, when things might get sticky or the shot's not falling. I mean, it just gets you over the hump. And so you're not looking at, you know, two, three, four, five-minute scoring droughts, which in a 40-minute game is massive. Yeah. Um, he's going, you know what, for the next two, three minutes, I'm going to score 12 points. And <laughs> that just greases the wheels for everybody. Mm-hmm. And and going from, from SGA to a player that I've really felt, felt just being on the ground and, and just watching the games that has really been almost the heart of and 
of this team has been Kelly Olenek. And how, for you, Michael, just what has he, what does he bring to, to to this team? That obviously in the NBA he's a good player, but in FIBA, like I keep saying, it's FIBA Kelly. Just why is he such? Why is he maybe going to to FIBA like a duck to water? And just in terms of his game and um, like, why do you think he's such an effective uh, FIBA player? I think he's got he's like FIBA Jokic, you know. Like I mean, that's yeah. probably a little high praise, but but um, there's a lot of there are some parallels in in terms of what he can bring to a team. And, you know, for those who don't know, Kelly Olenek was a point guard, right? He grew up the son of a coach, Ken Olenek, who was a, had national team ties um, going way back. And, you know, he was raised as a, as a point guard who happened to grow to be seven feet. Mm-hmm. And when Leo Routens put him on the team in 2010, as I don't even know if he had started at Gonzaga then, might have been it after his first year, you know, that's what he was – he had identified that that special ability to kind of see the floor, handle the ball, make plays for other people. And, you know, in the NBA, he's, he shows it, he's, he's good with it, but the reality is in that league, you know, if he's on, if you look at the teams he's been on going back to Boston, Miami, um, even now in Utah, there are guys who are paid more to do more. And, you know, they, so, Kelly Olenek has a role. It's he executes it at a high level. He's appreciated for it. But you know, there's somebody being paid literally in this day and age forty to fifty million dollars to make plays. And so, you know, the role that Kelly is slotted um, in an NBA game is is limited. And that's true of mm-hmm. many many players. And you know, if you want to survive in that league, you accept it and and you kind of you uh, you roll with it. And you know, but in this format because the ball is going to be in his hands, the full capacity of his basketball brain gets to be exercised and he's got the skills to go with it. And I think also at this level, you know, in the NBA, 6'11", whatever size he is, you know, he's not this freak athlete by NBA standards. He can't really impose his will quite the same way. In a FIBA game with the expectation of a couple of teams, a couple of matchups, he's probably the better athlete. He's the bigger athlete. He's a stronger athlete. And you, you know, so I think he's just able to like affect the game in a bigger way. That's interesting because that's something I've been almost thinking about with RJ, why he's been so good. Um, I asked him just what, how his games translated from, from FIBA, from the NBA to FIBA. And he said the paints wide open, which I found was a very interesting just comment because it should be, it shouldn't be the case with the defensive three seconds, obviously not being a part of the game. What have you seen in RJ and just what, how cool is it just that with his obviously Rowan being the the GM and his ties to Canada basketball, how cool is it just to have someone that like breathes, bleeds Canada basketball being such an effective player for Canada? Well, I think it's great. And, and I really like what he, he did against Latvia. I think RJ to me is a real swing piece for this team. Um, you know, you look at his NBA career, especially the last couple of years, you know, you look at his shooting and, and you know, he'll have a month where he's shooting about 27% for three and it looks pretty bad. And then he'll have a month where he shoots literally mid to mid forties from three. And he looks like he's going to be an all-star. And, you know, like I know he's working hard to kind of, kind of lift up the lows and smooth out the high, you know, get more mm-hmm. consistent in that area. But um, the reality is, is on this team, as you go along this tournament, I think teams are going to try and get the ball out of Shea's hands. 
why wouldn't you? You have to. Yeah. And you look at the quality of three-point looks that RJ has got, not just RJ, but others, they're wide open. And as long as the Canada goes side to side with the ball, once it gets out of Shea's hands, you're going to get a catch and shoot. You're going to have your feet set. You're going to have a good look at the rim. And, you know, coming into the game against Lithuania, I think, or sorry, Latvia, he was, I think he was shooting like 31%. I don't know the volume, but he, you know, there'd been a lot of good looking shots he hadn't connected. Today he was four or six from three. I think, you know, that's going to be, to me, a real swing story as this tournament goes along is the ball's going to find guys, it's going to find them open. And, uh, you know, to the extent Nikhil, Shea, Dylan, um, Lou, Lou Dort, if and when he comes back, I presume he comes back. Uh, you know, those guys, RJ, when those guys are knocking down what are going to be really good open looks, um, you know, if they are, Canada's going to go really deep. They're going to be a big problem. If they're not, as you saw, say, in the first half against uh, Latvia, it doesn't look as good. And then with it, like, do you think against the better teams that maybe the USA's, the Germany's, the Australia's, that Canada does have enough shooting to, to maybe when they collapse around Shea to, to make it um, kind of, you know, make it count and, and obviously make enough shots to against the best teams in the world? I think they have just enough. You know, I mean, I feel a lot better if, if uh, um, you know, they had like a like a Kyle Korver type sniper, you know, just a guy who just panics defense. I don't think, you know, I think if you're game planning for Canada right now, you might gamble a little bit and go, you know what? We're going to wait and see if Dylan Brooks can hurt us. We're going to wait and see if uh, RJ Barrett can hurt us because we know Shea Gilligan's mm-hmm. Alexander can hurt us. Um, and so, yeah, but, well, as I'm saying, like these guys are all capable. I think like, the way Nikhil's shooting and it's a continuation of what he did last year, uh, like he's he's potentially lethal. And, you know, so I think they, I do think they have just enough, but they've got to be the right guys on the right day in the right moment. And uh, that's kind of true always, right? But yeah. but I think you'd, you'd be less, I think other teams would be a lot more concerned if, you know, you had a Joe Ingles as an example, like kind of waiting on the weak side for the ball to swing. Mm-hmm. But um, but that's not to say any of these guys aren't capable of, of making those shots. And if they do, uh, Canada's going to be a big, big problem. And then it hasn't just been all offense for Canada. Their defense has been stifling. Um, and Jordy Fernandez, uh, when we were at the the training camp, talked about defense and Canada wanting to be the best defensive team in the tournament. And they, by some metrics, have been so far. Um, Michael, what do you think that has made this team so good defensively? Is it just the ball hawks and, and Dylan Brooks's, Lou Dort's? Just, um, and how are they kind of maybe a lot, um, kind of still maintaining a really good defense with maybe a lack of, uh, kind of shot blocking and, and, you know, rim protection. Yeah, I think they have, um, you know, I, I think they have uh, enough guys who have the mentality, first of all, right? So, you know, Dylan Brooks, he knows why he's making 80 million bucks. And, uh, you know, I think Blue Dark clearly do I knows why he's making, I think, 90 million bucks. Yeah. And, <laughs> and um, you know, and, and the Keel Alexander-Walker is a very interesting case where it's beginning to sink in for him, what he needs to do to be, you know, a 10, 12, 14 year NBA player. Right. And on the way, probably make 150 million bucks. Right. It's, it's, you know, and I was talking about Kelly earlier, just, you know, for Nikhil, it's going to be, these are the two things I have to excel at. And it might mean not showing my full bag 
but if I do, there's a job for me for life, kind of. And, mm-hmm. um, you know, and part of that, as we saw in the, down the stretch, you know, against in that sort of play-in game for the play-in mm-hmm. uh, between Minnesota and OKC at the end of last season, the way he locked up Shea, uh, the job he did on Jamal Murray in the, you know, in the first round of the playoffs, um, he's capable, right? And I think it's he's – so that's three guys who understand – you know, why and how they can make money in the NBA. And then, you know, and then you have a bunch of guys, other guys who are like RJ Barrett is not, you know, I don't think he's going all defense anytime soon, but he's a smart, capable, willing defender. I think, you know, you got a guy like Shea, um, he's a playmaking defender, right? Mm-hmm. Like he's, you know, he's not a lock guy down. He's not going to run, a, you know, nor would you want him to be spinning around a whole bunch of three screens and blowing his shoulder up. But, you know, he's going to, a lot of those guys at his level, um, the, the genius they have offensively allows them to kind of casually make plays defensively and shows up block shots, steals, you know, deflections, those kinds of things. Just little things around the ball, next thing they're gone. So, you know, they have enough guys. They have a lot of switchability. And, again, going back to the IQ, I think the passion is there. That's obviously a big part of it. And, um, you know, I think I think they have reason to expect themselves to be – one of, if not the best teams in the tournament defensively. I mean, minus a true rim protecting shot blocker, they're probably the most athletic team in the league next to the United States. Um, so, you know, that should translate defensively. And I think we've seen signs of it doing so, so far. Just quickly, what, how do you think, or why has, or I don't know, like I'm just so impressed with Dylan Brooks in terms of just his shot selection and the way he's played for Canada so far. What do you think's maybe changed for him from maybe the way he's he played in Minnesota, uh, Minnesota in uh, Memphis, um, and and now obviously in Houston because he's he's just really not taking any bad shots, which I was really worried about. Just his shot selection, he really doesn't take any anymore. So I don't. What's changed there, Michael? Yeah, I don't know. I mean, you can only speculate. <clears throat> uh, could be as simple as his job description, right? Like it's like and. You know, I think when you come to play for the national team, you're obviously not doing it for money. Um, you're doing it because you honor and respect the people you're playing with and, and the purpose. And so I think in that environment, it's uh, maybe a little easier to say, you know what, I'm going to sacrifice this, this and that if I need to. And um, it could be coaching as well. Like if you're being recognized the right way and it could be teammates mm. recognizing, respecting what you're bringing. Um then it gets a little, you know, it's like people aren't that complicated, right? Like when they're valued for certain things and respected for certain things, they're more likely to to respond in kind, right? So um, not being in the room, I don't know. But I, I, mean, I would say that, you know, I, I, I'm not like a good buddy with Dylan Brooks, but I have, <laughs> I, I do kind of know him a little bit. And you know, the, the image that has kind of, he's had certainly had a hand in creating around himself, but I think kind of got, kind of took on a life of its own is not really accurate and precise to the person he is and the spirit he has. And, um, you know, I think in this environment, a lot of guys, you know, really love playing for the national team because a lot of NBA bullshit, if I can say that, mm-hmm. gets tossed at the window, right? It's yeah. not, you're not competing for minutes. You're not competing for paychecks. You're not a rival with anyone on your own roster. Um, you're not trying to earn an award. You're not trying to like, it's not uh-huh. your career. It's your yeah. passion. And um, mm. 
And so I think, you know, that's a reason a lot of players are come to a national team program and are willing to do things a little differently. And before I let you go, Michael, um, obviously Canada came to this tournament with with two things in mind. Uh, firstly, getting an Olympic spot and, and then maybe con- getting a, a medal. They, they keep talking about they have eight, uh, seven or eight straight game sevens uh, and then hopefully to, to win the whole tournament. But for you, Michael, what maybe expect? What are your expectations? How do you see? How far do you see them going? Do you see them getting the Olympic spot? Um, obviously, for people that don't know, Dominican is probably their toughest test alongside the USA for those two spots. Um, just what do you think probably ends up if if I ask you to be Nostradamus and, and tell us what will happen in the end? What what do you think will happen in the end, Michael? I mean, I mean, I think this team is going to get an Olympic spot. But as you point out, even though, you know, we when we have this conversation, like there's basically, got, by the time this thing ends, there's probably going to be four teams in the Americas competing for two spots, right? It's going to be Brazil, Dominican, USA, and Canada. Um, the problem for Canada is you only play Brazil, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so you're hoping that, A, you beat Brazil, you beat Spain, you advance, and that maybe Dominican stumbles, or if not, you advance beyond them and you're kind of assuming the U.S. will. So um, I think it's very obvious that Canada is the second best team of the seven mm-hmm. from the Americas that are here, but they can't control what happens to with the Dominican. They can only control their own thing. I think if, if things unfold as they should, Canada does get a spot. Um, and it's kind of harsh to say, but at this point in the game, you have to say it. If they don't, it will be a failure. Like yeah. it's all the stuff that we're excited about now won't matter if they kind of, you know, they can't get out of this next group stage and, and they make and does and, 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 or something happens in the way the, the seating goes, mm-hmm. um, not to get in all those details, but, um, so it's, this is, that is the mission. And if they don't, it really sets the program back. And, um, if they do, it's a little bit like that game against France. You're you're in the Olympics. Uh, everyone on the business side of Canada basketball can go start selling those sponsorships, can start kind of hunting the ground, the money, you know, kind of investing, getting a return on the investment they've made at this point. It's a huge, huge, huge thing. And um, they got to get it done, I think. Mm-hmm. So if I'm predicting, I do think that they advance to the semis. Am I going to predict that they would beat the USA, who is the team they would meet in the semis? Um, I'm going to say they can. Uh, we've seen, you know, U.S. teams stumble at the Worlds before. They bring a young team, usually not a lot of experience, either together or in FIBA, so they're a little bit vulnerable. Um, on paper, you wouldn't pick Canada. But I think by that time, Canada is going to have a very talented team that's a little bit battle-tested. And, if, you know, they certainly won't be intimidated by uh, the guys they play against all the time. Hmm. And so, you know, it'd be a heck of a story if they could pull that off. And if they pull that off, then I think they're the gold medalist. Wow. Um, what do you think it would mean just for, for basketball in this country if Canada were to make the Olympics or even win the World Cup, but more more on, on the Olympics? I mean, I think the missing ingredient for basketball in the Canadian landscape is a national team uh presence and success story and Mm -hmm. i think even now you know the national team is still a bit of a 
you know, it's kind of a, like a bit of a hardcore crowd is into it. Like, you it know, I don't think people, people walking the streets are talking about the national team the way they deserve to be talked about. And the only th- way that changes is, you know, you look at women's soccer in this country and, you know, before Canada was making runs at the, Olymp- at, at, at the World Cup and at the Olympics, um, you know, they, very quickly that captivated the country. And I think it put women's soccer in a different place, uh, you know, and, and people, it just changes perceptions. And so I think that's, you know, you look at what the Raptors have done with their championships, with the presence, with the way they've kind of been a rallying point for basketball fans all, all across the country. I think, um, you know, a national team is something different. And if this generation of players can make noise here at a World Cup, make it to an Olympics, and make that World Cup and Olympics cycle a routine that they're, mm-hmm. you know, they're going to be at the Olympics, multiple Olympics games in a row, and then, you know, they end up in a gold medal game. I mean, those are the moments that I think will be, you know, transform, maybe the final transformation of what Canada, it, the relation Canada has with the sport. Well, Michael, thanks so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Uh, you know, I, I've, I said before, but I'm just such a big fan of your work. Um, it was really cool to see you and your element in Toronto at training camp and um, just kind of working there. And um, yeah, so thanks so much, Michael. And I'm looking forward to your coverage the rest of the way. And hopefully for the both of our sakes, uh, Canada makes the Olympics and maybe uh, gets a, a medal or even maybe even a gold medal here in Jakarta and then in, in Manila for the quarterfinals and, and the, the final round. So thanks again, Michael. I really, really appreciate it and uh, have a great rest of your day. Alex, thank you so much for the kind words and uh, good on you getting over there and, and try and get some rest and, and enjoy it and keep up your own good work. Thanks a lot, Michael.